Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Ellen Leveda. Welcome to Think Sustainability on 2SCR, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. Today, we're jumping pause first into answering the question, which pet is the most sustainable? Do you mean like which pet poos the least around the house or where are my dog's schmacko treats coming from? Ooh, underground investigative journalism (laughs) there. Uh, Yes, some pets are a bit more eco-friendly than others, but that doesn't mean you have to get rid of them. We'll be learning a few tips to reduce your furry friend's carbon paw print. Very cute. But first, think about the things that make up your home. Your bed, your sheets, your fridge, washing machine, toilet, your clothes even. All of this stuff has to come from somewhere. And someone somewhere is responsible for making it. Or at least in charge of the machine that makes it. But who is making all of this stuff? Where are we getting it all from? And who's hard at work trying to keep up with the demand? So let's go back to what you were saying about stuff in your home. Your fridges and your washing machines. All those things are made in factories. And here in Australia, often a lot of that is made overseas. So knowing who's making it is really hard to keep track of. And when we buy things for the house, we're involved in this supply and demand system and we become part of what's called a supply chain. But as Emmanuel Josseron from the UTS Business School says, a supply chain isn't as black and white as buying a washing machine. So basically, it's all the steps that you have different actors intervening along these steps that come from raw materials to an end product that will be distributed to a customer. So there are very long supply chains. For instance, if you look at computers, you would start by minerals that can be extracted in Africa, and that's included in components, and you have different level of assembly of this component, and these components are sold to another group of companies that will bring them together and manufacture maybe an iPhone that is then sold by Apple. And what we see is, you know, Apple and, and the brand and the iPhone, but obviously that goes all the way back to people working in the mines in Congo, which is a very bad example of, you know, non-sustainable practices, by the way. But not everything we buy comes from factories. Uh, If you're looking at vegetables, they are grown in Australia and they are often supplied directly from big farming uh, operations to retailers who use their own logistics to bring that to shops. So someone that grows local produce might come from a smaller supply chain than, say, a long supply chain conglomerate like Apple. But as Sarah Kane from the UTS Business School says... Length isn't the only difference between short and long supply chains. There's a difference also, though, in terms of corporate social responsibility and how organisations deal with supply chains. So often we see large organisations able to monitor the first tier of their supply chain. So if they have a very complex supply chain, it becomes difficult for the main organisation, say Apple's the example we use, for them to monitor everything that's down a complex supply chain. It's very often you're able to see, take garments, for example, the first tier of your supply chain, but delving deeper is where it starts to be more tricky and where you start to see some of the the uh, less sustainable practices both in terms of the environment and in terms of people so the length of the supply chain has big implications for um, corporate social responsibility for those organizations at the top of those supply chains and when a supply chain is global things can get a bit tricky so then you start to get 
you know, a range of factors that impact on labour standards, including jurisdictional issues. Not only do you have geographical dispersion of workers, you also have a range of different jurisdictions that apply. So you start to get a complexity in the type of regulation that's applied. You also tend to get difficulties arise from the types of workers that are engaged at different parts of the supply chain. So a case that we've been dealing with looks at migrant workers, migrant Vietnamese workers in Thailand and Malaysia. And once you start to get groups of migrant workers who perhaps don't know their rights, um, you start to get issues of those rights not being honoured in certain circumstances. When we're talking about migrant labourers, many of these people can't even speak the language of the country they're in, let alone know their own legal rights. Here's Emmanuel. In the case of the fruit and vegetable picking uh, situation, there was something like this. Even here, there was nobody to tell them what they should have obtained. And so that can result in practices that range from, you know, probably not paying the right wage or making people work longer hours to really much more dramatic, not, not that these are, are acceptable, but much more dramatic situation where people are used as slaves. They have, they pay huge price to get their ticket to go to another country. They have to pay back this debt, so they are bound labor. They are poorly treated. They can be beaten up. They can't change employers. They have no freedom. And obviously, you know, not to mention basic rights, such as the right to freely associate to fight for their rights. I mean, that doesn't happen at all. And in the worst cases, well, something bad happened at work, they get sick and they are left to die. So that it can become very quickly highly dramatic. So we know that ethical supply chains are an important social justice issue, but why are they a sustainability one? When we're talking about sustainability, increasingly um, there's an understanding that environmental sustain- sustainability is only one part of that discussion, only one part of the sustainability pie, and that both the sustainability of labour, the sustainability of people, the sustainability of communities is very much tied in with environmental sustainability, and that if you don't think of sustainability holistically, you may actually end up with initiatives that you know might be looking at environmental sustainability but don't take into account people and they might be working against each other. So, um, so it kind of, to me, underpins everything else that happens. And also, if you're to get local buy-in to anything to do with with environmental outcomes, people are going to need to feel that they have a living wage, that their families are going to be looked after as a minimum before their minds are going to turn to environmental considerations. There are three players at hand here when monitoring unethical supply chains, according to Emmanuel. One is governments, and that's your very important aspect of, of the issue. Governments have a role to play, um, and that's through public procurement enforcement in their own country, but also participating in trade agreements that are more and more in, that include more and more aspect on social justice. Then you have the consumer power. If you have a campaign and then people start to pay more attention and you know buy products based on that, obviously that will have an impact. And the third power is, is labor. You want to organise these three. One of the issues around the governance gap is how to bring the three together. And how do you bring the three together? That is the $6 million question and, and the research we've been conducting has very much been looking at different attempts to do this. Many people, many organisations recognise the problems. It's how to go about rectifying them that poses the challenge. And if we take labour standards, which we've been looking at in particular, there are lots of organisations who have an interest. And in fact, there are quite a few governance mechanisms that theoretically apply to make sure that this kind of exploitation doesn't happen. The problems that 
we have is in having those enforced or implemented on the ground. If you don't have workers, as you've already described, who know their rights, workers who are somehow enfranchised to take some kind of action to, to receive those rights, then all of those governance mechanisms really don't count for much. And so you have these workers, the most disenfranchised workers, falling between those gaps. We call it the governance gap. And that's the big issue. Not so much saying that we need more and more governance, but how do we even enforce what we've already got? We're talking about ethical supply chains with Sarah Kane and Emmanuel Josserand from the UTS Business School. Now, we've already looked at what ethical supply chains are and why they're a sustainability issue. But what you're going to hear now is the work they've done with Vietnamese migrant workers in places like Malaysia and China and how these workers are being gravely mistreated. So we were there at the invitation of what we would call a sort of micro-activist group who try to assist migrant Vietnamese workers in Malaysia. So the situation with those workers is that they are generally approached in Vietnam by recruitment agencies looking to source labour for companies in Malaysia, Thailand, other Asian countries. Those workers, those Vietnamese workers, pay an agent's fee, um, generally a largish one, equivalent of about our $3,000, to be placed in a job overseas. There, they then sign a contract and are sent to a particular employer in Malaysia, etc. So we went and met with workers in Malaysia who had signed these contracts and had ended up in the construction sector and the ele- electronics component sector. We spent two weeks during which we followed this grassroots group in their different activities. So there were, you know, formal meetings between them to try and coordinate with nonprofits and other initiatives. Um, then we also spent time with the workers, visiting them where, where they lived, and that was quite a tough experience because we are talking of very minimal living conditions uh, with no, you know, no toilets. Uh, several people in a, twenty people in a, in a two-bedroom flat. Another group working in a container where there was absolutely no basic. I'm not talking about comfort, but you know, you wash yourself uh, with no no proper source of water, and and that was already a very confronting um, experience and so and then we we saw how they tried to help them support them organize things for them so they organize meetings where they tell them their rights which is you know the basic things we're talking about malaysia so there are some labor standards there there are unions there are basic rights uh, that often apply also to to migrant labor so that's a first level also to try to create a collegiality and bringing them together saying well you know, if the 20 of you go to your employer and say, well, we need our pa- passport back because if we get arrested, we're to jail. So we, we can't live like that. But also f- trying to find alternate job for them. So, for instance, one of the people there that was representing this group went to see different restaurants and got 10 different restaurants that could employ several workers where the wage was better than what they'd get uh, in the factory. So a key issue that it actually seems quite small to us, which is the, the capacity to keep your own passport, seems like a, a very simple issue. And, and I didn't quite understand the seriousness of it. So one of the key things that we were trying to get ha- to happen for these workers was that they felt secure enough to request their passports back from their employers. In, in Malaysia, if a migrant worker is arrested without their passport, they get put into jail. Um, then it's required that someone somehow finds out they're in jail 
and then gets the documents from the Vietnamese embassy to try and then release that person from jail. So the fact of just simply not having the passport for these workers really took away many of their freedoms. And it was the intent of employers keeping a passport is so that they make sure that that their workers can't leave if they're dissatisfied. So it allows them to keep control of the workforce and to contain them and in some way to ensure that the contract which they've signed to have these workers work for them is honoured as far as they see it. So we haven't even got to things like a reasonable wage. We haven't even got to things like the, the rules on the dormitory walls where we visited which said things like when you could be home, what you could do in the dorms, who could visit the dorms. Even for people who research labour standards, it was quite confronting to see exactly what that meant in the day-to-day life of those workers. For these people who are trying to provide for their families, are working because that's what they have to do. They're being contracted to go there and just being stripped of all of your rights and they have no real way to rally against that or really do something about it. It's just insane. One of the basic things is that many of them didn't receive the promised wages or the number of hours so that because they had to pay for meals or they had to pay for accommodation, which wasn't necessarily clearly defined before, most of them were in a situation where they could hardly you know, start to pay back the debt. So, and, and initially the promise was that they would send money back home and that was a sacrifice. So away from their kids, they didn't raise their children, the grandparents do, because they would they wanted to provide for the family and that wasn't happening which, which was the basic things even if they didn't end up in jail the initial contract wasn't fulfilled at all and then there were the more extreme examples which we learned about they're speaking with this micro activist organization that attempts to help these workers so there's an example of a particular factory where the two new Vietnamese migrant women didn't speak the local dialect the Malaysian dialect and were instructed to turn up to work at a particular time and and didn't do so because they didn't understand and turned up late and they were then punished by the employer and, and sent away and not paid and not given work or the example where a worker was not satisfied with her job and tried to leave and then was essentially kidnapped and she believes was sold two or three times within an evening to different employers then was put into a job that she hadn't anticipated which was caring for an older an older Malaysian woman and she was very unhappy and so she was quite upset and crying she was then locked in a toilet and not given very much to eat and she managed to escape and made contact with one of the group that we were talking with. Using this example of going over for the Vietnamese workers in Malaysia, Mm -hmm. and obviously this is um, quite different from what we might experience here in Australia, but that doesn't mean that that practice isn't happening here let alone anywhere else in the world. Exactly. I mean, you have you have local examples, and we mentioned the agriculture example before. Really, it happens wherever you have disenfranchised workers, and that's not geographically specific, unfortunately. That's something that can happen anywhere. And so in Australia, we have, again, often migrant workers who face some of the same barriers, language barriers, cultural barriers, knowledge barriers to accessing their rights. So wherever you have workers that are in some way disenfranchised from the regulatory system, you're going to see the same types of exploitation, which is just exacerbated by the complexity of supply chains, whether they're short, long, etc. If we think about one of the most emblematic examples of progress in terms of bringing people together around fixing the issue, um, if you remember the Rana Plata event, which led to something called the Accord, the Rana Plata Accord, 
this accord brings together different stakeholders, but including companies who committed to things that are enforceable. So they have to meet certain standards. If they don't, then there will be consequences. While at the same time, you had another group called the Alliance who say, no, we don't want that. We'll put something which is classic CSR, which is self-imposed standard with no binding consequences because they didn't want to go down that path where they would be held responsible for anything that would happen down the supply chain. So there's, there's still a lot of, uh, of resistance there where anything that would be more than a voluntary commitment to improving standard is seen as a threat to um, the corporate world. Sarah Kane and Emmanuel Josserand from the UTS Business School. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SER 107.3. Now, Jake, I have something I need to get off my chest. I'm all ears. A few weeks ago, my sister came screaming into the house saying our cat had left a giant rat on the doorstep. Not the first time it's happened, only when I went to investigate, it wasn't a giant rat, it was a baby possum. Oh no! (laughs) Well, my cat is totally guilty of that too in the past. Um, Let's take a moment's silence to recognise all the animals killed by cats. Anyway, the whole experience of having to bury this baby possum made me think that my cat is not exactly a sustainability champion. It actually made me think, what is the most sustainable pet? Here we go. So, before we get started, let's define what a pet means for the purpose of this story. A pet is an animal, a living animal that lives with a unit of people, so a family or a household or a farm or something like that. Um, that is there more as a companion rather than a utility. Full disclosure, Steve is a cat owner. My name is Steve Anage and I'm a veterinarian from Dremoyne Veterinary Hospital in Sydney. Yeah, my cat's really, he's a cool cat. You know, he, he's a little animal, so he does consume food and therefore he has a carbon footprint. But yeah, I think he's really, it's very gentle and minimalistic. We'll also be hearing from a woman called Michelle in a moment. Hi there, I'm Michelle O'Brien. I'm the City of Sydney's Companion Animals Liaison Officer and I own a dog. One more piece of housekeeping. How do we define sustainability when it comes to pets? I think sustainability means that you don't um, have a negative impact on the planet, that you do things in a way that you can have stuff but it shouldn't leave any damage or consume too much. And yeah, so some pets require a lot more food or energy or, you know, plastic or transport or whatever compared to others. Let's start at the most obvious pets. Dogs and cats and 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 dogs and cats. Because they are the most commonly owned pet. And let's start with a common denominator. Food. Yeah, they eat. So you've got to start thinking about where your food comes from. You know, do you feed canned or dry food or fresh food? You know, canned food, you're buying tins and and the weight has to be transported to your shops and then put in plastic bags to take it home. You know, whereas if you buy a big bag of dry food once once every couple of months, you've just got a big plastic or paper bag full of dehydrated food. So there's, you know, just the actual type of food you feed is, you can make a big impact, I think. 
Also, if you're feeding your cat or dog meat, well, we don't need to really rehash how bad meat is for the environment. Another sustainability issue common to dogs and cats is poo, and it's not good. You know, lots of people use a little plastic bag every time they go down the park and they put the poo in the plastic bag and chuck it in the bin and you think, oh my goodness, where does that go? You know, even if it's those kind of biodegradable or degradable bags, which are not necessarily biodegradable, um, you know, the the disposal of dog poo is a huge issue for councils and, and community sort of situations. Same goes for kitty poo. If you are throwing away the kitty litter in the bin, that's more waste. But there is something you can do. You can put dog poo into a worm farm and compost heaps, but you have to be very careful that you haven't given your dog um, any sort of worming medication. So tummy worm medications or heartworm medications. If you give your dog a worming pill or your cat and you tip the cat litter or the dog poo into your worm farm, you can have a, 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 an obliteration situation, basically. You know, you can just completely wipe out your worm farm with, with one of the drugs that we use for tummy worms. So far, so good. As long as you don't fall into the trap of rampant consumerism, that is. They're always looking to have some fun. But when you're not around, they can be lonely and tear up the town. Not anymore. Introducing Wobblewag Giggle Ball, the interactive ball that makes the most hilarious sounds. Turning a lonely day into a fun gets bored and wants to play. But that can spell trouble when you're away. Introducing Cat's Meow, the exciting new cat toy that keeps your kitty entertained at play both night and day. Just press the button. Some people spend a huge amount of money on accessories so you've got to be a bit careful not to be buying a new collar every time something trendy comes out or you know there's a lot of stuff. It's pretty easy to be a sustainable cattle dog owner then if you put your pet's poo in a worm farm and feed them dry food. But what about the pet itself? I'm looking at you cats. We see more of a problem with cats because they are actually allowed to roam free. Um, in the, under New South Wales legislation. So cats do roam free. You don't really see dogs roaming as much, so you're going to see a higher incidence of, of cats um, preying on, on lizards and, and small mammals. And uh, possums, in my case. But cats kill pests like rats and mice and Indian minor birds, right? Does that outweigh the death of lizards and other native wildlife? Yeah, I think the fact that they native animals like lizards and birds probably outweighs the fact that they eat rats and mice. And, you know, people have introduced cats into places um, to control the rat population. Like, they've introduced them into... Many years ago, they introduced rats into the Galapagos Islands by accident. So then they brought in cats to control the rats. And so, you know, now there's this huge environmental disaster because you've so got... the woman who still got the rats. Fly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you've still got the rats. There's less rats, which is fine. So there's more eggs. So the birds have got more chance of surviving. But then the cats kill the birds. So it's a big... For cats. I just want to hug all of them, but I can't because that's crazy. I can't hug every cat. However, if you do want to hug your cat... There are things you can do to reduce their environmental impact, keeping them inside, for starters. Look, 24-7 would be great um, because it's not only protecting wildlife, but it's protecting the cat as well. You know, cats can get hit by cars. They can end up eating poison accidentally. Um, it'll stop them from spreading disease and getting into other cat fights with, with neighbours' cats and feral cats. So um, keeping them indoors 100% will definitely, you know, um, stop a lot of problems and complaints that we receive at the City of Sydney about cats. Michelle also says it's a good idea to keep your cat inside from kitten age so that they don't get the urge to go outside when they're an adult. Who let the 
Now, back to dogs. They do occasionally kill other small animals, but definitely not as much as cats. It's hard for me to say this as a cat owner, but dogs might actually be a more sustainable animal than cats, mainly because they get their owners out of the house. The health benefits of having dogs are, are sort of widely discussed and there have been some really serious research projects that have shown there's lots of benefits and there's been a couple that, that sort of say, well, it's a bit overstated. But I think, yeah, taking your, if you take your dog for a walk every afternoon, it's probably better for the environment and for your health than it would be to sit in front of the television. And yes, if you're healthier, then you're less likely to engage with the, the human health system, which is presumably a fairly disastrous thing for the environment with all the plastic and drugs and chemicals that go through hospitals. So yes, I think having a dog is very social and very healthy and um, yeah, it's good fun to get out and do stuff rather than just sitting around. Dogs, man and nature's best friend. Then there are rabbits, which are also surprisingly sustainable. More sustainable than cats, apparently. It's because rabbits are vegetarian and they eat straw. It's probably better than eating meat. You know, cats have to eat protein. Rabbits just eat kind of grass. So, so yeah, I think from a sustainability perspective, having a pet rabbit is probably better than having a pet cat. It goes without saying that dogs, cats and rabbits all need to be desexed so they don't go into breeding overdrive. But the crown of most sustainable pet of all is the chicken. And they aren't just a farm animal. Well, chickens are good for lots of reasons. First of all, they're domestic animals, so they're, they're adapted. They're like an agricultural animal, but it's been adapted to live in very close proximity to humans. So they're not, sort of, they're not scared of humans. They're not instinctively scared of humans, whereas some other small animals are, like... Um, guinea pigs and rabbits and stuff um, sometimes they get and little birds can be really stressed in a human environment whereas chickens are kind of really robust um, so from their own welfare perspective most chickens have a, a, a pet chickens have a really good life just all around excellent pets really hey there had to be a pun in there somewhere but gee, the positives are great. They're really interesting. They're, they're really interesting animals to observe. People who have them um, love their chooks and um, they lay eggs. So you can chuck your scraps in there. They eat bugs and pests in the garden and they produce fertilizer and, um, and they require very minimal input. Like you just set up a bit of shelter for them. You don't need to have a fancy chook house. You know, you can if you want to. If, if you've got foxes in the area, you do need to have a proper secure place at night. Um, but in general, chooks are just fantastic little animals, you know, and they're productive, so that's great. Despite the sustainability issues associated with pets, overall, the positives outweigh the negatives. Just make sure you're a responsible pet owner. They definitely outweigh um, the, the, the sustainability problems, but it's obviously very important as well to be a sustainable pet owner. There's so much information and there's a lot of education out there for them to look, look into and, and be responsible so that there are no problems with sustainability um, in, with owning a pet. Besides, a world without pets? Not a world we want to live in, at least according to Steve. 
animals and humans have always been together and always will be. There's there's no point. Like I just cannot imagine people are talking about going and living on Mars and stuff. I mean, are they going to take animals with them? Probably not. So you just think, really? Imagine that. I just think animals are so wonderful and so interesting and so enriching that the thought of living without them just is weird to me. So I just think it's okay and it's good to have them. We just have to do it in a way that's gentle and, and sensible and not crass and overconsumptive. You keep telling me to get a compost, Ellen, but I think a worm farm is where it's at. Hey, maybe worm farms can give chicken a run for their money as the most sustainable pet. Thanks for listening to the show. Think Sustainability is produced with the assistance of the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. For more information about what you've heard today, head along to our website, 2SER.com forward slash Think Sustainability. And you can also subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability. The show is produced with the assistance of the University of Technology Sydney. I'm Jack Morecambe. I'm Ellen Leibeter. See you next week. Bye.